Welcome to Letters Read, the ongoing series of readings from various times and communities in New Orleans and Louisiana. This is our sixth season. I'm stationer Nancy Sharon Collins, director. Usually we focus on letters in institutional archives, special collections, and from individuals' own attics and file cabinets. In this reading, we also listen to portions of our subject's journal and refer to contemporaneous magazine articles. As one may recall, in 1963, JFK was assassinated on the Grassy Knoll in Dallas, Texas. In 1967, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison arrested the well-respected New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw. Today's subject. Garrison tried Shaw in Orleans Parish Criminal Court on conspiracy in 1969. A little over a month later, the jury acquitted Shaw in under 55 minutes. Theories swirl around the case. Some suspect the FBI, CIA, the mafia, and big players of masterminding the conspiracy. I mentioned Shaw and Garrison to my 60-year-old-plus neighbors in New Orleans and same-sex sex scandals abound. Garrison fond of little boys, Shaw's sexual tastes tended towards leather and whips, Garrison and Shaw met for illicit trysts in the New Orleans Athletic Club steam room, and that they shared Lee Harvey Oswald as a love object. On and on the stories go. What is known is that Oswald was arrested as the Kennedy assassin. Two days after, he was assassinated by Jack Ruby. We also know that during the Orleans Parish conspiracy trial, Garrison outed Shaw at a time when it was illegal for men to have sex with other men. Shaw had spent a lifetime keeping his private life to himself. Being outed was devastating. This reading strives to represent a tiny simplified portion of Clay Shaw, the only person ever brought to trial for conspiring to assassinate John F. Kennedy. Man, until the 1991 Oliver Stone epic political thriller JFK introduced Tommy Lee Jones incorrectly portraying Shaw as an effeminate caricature, who knew there could be a connection between the Crescent City, this handsome, successful businessman, and JFK's assassination? If you are unfamiliar with this saga, listen and be amazed. Robert Valley reads as Shaw and letters to him. I provide contextual information, and David Zolkind is Garrison. David's voice, recorded remotely, sounds different. We commence, Robert reading a photocopy of Shaw's journal from the Williams Research Center, New Orleans, Louisiana. The original is in the National Archives. Oh, a note, Robert grew up and still resides round the corner from where Shaw lived in the historic French Quarter. May the 1st, 1967. And so it is, two months today that I have been under arrest. Unbelievable. It is astonishing how one can become accustomed to anything, and yet there's not much change in the physical aspects of my life. I go ahead as I have, living quietly, having gas, going out to dinner, but there is a kind of sense of living in a fort, somewhat beleaguered. And there is some loneliness at night. Up at seven after a good night's sleep, then after prayers, coffee. 
and the world's worst newspaper, the Times-Picayune. Mirabelle Dictu. There was nothing in it about the garrison probe. And as usual, not much news of anything else. David Chandler blames most of the ills of New Orleans on the Times-Picayune, which certainly does not inform people of what's going on. And I began to believe that he is right. At 8.30, the men came from Foria Awning to replace the canopy over the patio. I had insisted that they remove the old and put on the new on the same day so that I should not have any lack of privacy. But alas, after they had gotten the old cover off, they found the new one did not fit, and they had to take it back to the shop to be altered. Then when they returned, they found the shop man had put the lacing strip on the wrong side. So back to the sewing machines. However, it took, all took only about two hours and I was able to put up with a lack of privacy for that time. The new canopy looks most handsome, and if Jay will now just provide me with approximately six big ferns to put in the bed under it, the garden will be plus en moi, more or less completed. The chrysanthemum plants look a little sickly, but I talk to them each morning, and I'm sure that eventually they will grow and flourish like the traditional bay tree. Clay Laverne Shaw, born Kentwood, Louisiana, March 17, 1913. Honorably discharged in 1946, a major in the United States Army. Served as secretary to the general staff and decorated by three nations, the United States, France, and Belgium. After World War II, Shaw was instrumental in starting the New Orleans International Trademark, an organization promoting business and cultural activities between New Orleans and foreign countries. For 20 years, he was managing director, retiring in 1965. He successfully advocated for historic preservation in the French Quarter. He was well-known and liked in social and business circles. In 1971, New Orleans Mayor Moon Landrieu named him manager of a $2.5 million renovation of the city's historic French market. That was a lot of money back then. Shaw stood six feet four inches, an imposing, articulate, smart, and charming man. On March 1, 1967, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison arrested and charged Shaw with conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy and brought Shaw to trial, during which Garrison brutally outed Clay Shaw as a homosexual, the outdated term used for men preferring to have sex with other men. It's difficult for us now to perceive that being homosexual, the then clinical term, was outlawed. As with so, so many men, Shaw was closeted for self-preservation. Queers were literally deviants. Queer behavior, absolutely dangerous. Robert reads a supportive March 25, 1967 letter from a queer friend in Caracas. Oh, a historic note. Queer used in this manner is relatively new. Preceded by gay, popularized after the Stonewall Riots, June 28, 1969. Shaw's acquittal was March 1 of that same year. Henry writes, Dear Clay, having just finished The Mask of Apollo and wondering how to bypass the mail in getting this to you, I feel like I am writing to Plato while Dionysius quests in Artigia. Luckily enough, I've just come across a talented and trustworthy actor to serve as emissary. Seriously, Clay, I hope you will forgive my not writing sooner. The delay I was feeling was being able to articulate the emotional demands of the occasion. 
Be assured that my thoughts have been very much with you these weeks. Indeed, my thoughts of your role in a predicament that could have happened to any of us. One particular thought has emerged overridingly. If there is any satisfaction in aging, for we at least, it is a certain self-assurance and self-confidence in relation to how I choose to live my life. I've increasingly become proud of myself in every respect and most assuredly in respect to sex. And having always admired you for that pride and self-assurance, I am equally proud to state that I've become more like you. I am confident too that your reserve of this quality has enabled you to take in easy stride the vicious attacks made on you. A second thought I've had is the realization of how delightful life is in Latin America, or at least in Venezuela. Our taste is not classified as a legal sin here. And as I mentioned to Jeff over the phone when I called for you, I, unlike Marie, cannot bill you statues. However, should you care to come and visit Caracas, I promise to present you in quality and quantity enough models for building a new Antiopolis. Fondly, Henry. Hardly immune to media coverage of his trial, Shaw buried himself in quotidian patterns, distancing himself from gay friends to protect them. Robert again continuing Shaw's journal. Sunday, May 14, 1967, up 7 a.m. 11.30 a.m., Senator Long meets the press and tries case on television. Eddie's reaction. Dogs picked up. We play gin waiting for return of dogs. 6 p.m., dogs back. We go to Masson's for dinner. Home, 8 p.m., gin till 10 p.m. news. More on Russell Long and his big fat mouth. Red to midnight, Marilyn to bed at 10.30, Awake at 5 a.m., but took a pill and slept till 8 a.m. It's tough talking about the Clayshaw trial without introducing Jim Garrison. Garrison was a New Orleans attorney championed by some and despised by others. He was quick to make statements to the press for effect and was extremely sensitive to the effect he had on the general public. He loved media attention, was adept using it to his own advantage, and quickly became a national figure charging Clayshaw with conspiracy. With this grandstanding, it's important to note that many of his accusations would later be abandoned or denied as they were brought falsely. David reads one of Garrison's many pot-stirring correspondence to Shaw's criminal defense attorney. I am disappointed. You seem to have found it necessary to misinterpret the motive for our reply to your pleadings, and you have found necessary further to violate Judge Haggerty's order regarding pretrial comments. The information contained in the answer we filed was made necessary by your contention that Mr. Shaw's notebook was not relevant to the case. As a matter of fact, I limited my explanation of the reason for its being relevant to a single instance when I could easily have provided more. The obvious and unique importance of this particular document made it necessary to leave no doubt about its relevance and the complexity of the point obviously required an early communication of such relevance. On the other hand, you and your colleagues have now voluntarily made new comments to the press, continuing your references to the innocence of your client and the sinister activities of the district attorney with which 
you initiated your representation of Mr. Shaw many weeks ago. We have a very good response, which we would like to make regarding Mr. Shaw's contention that the post office box number is really a coincidence and that the, quote, Lee Odom, end quote, is a business acquaintance of his. However, I am not going to make any comment about that because that would simply contribute to a colloquy outside of the courtroom, which would inevitably result in a reply by you, in a counter-reply by me. Garrison believed that a post office box number found in Shaw's address book belonged to Lee Harvey Oswald, his assassin Jack Ruby, or members of the CIA. Increasingly, Garrison became at home in conflict, laying down layers of unnecessary smoke to confuse legal issues he had not the basis to charge. I read the May 15, 1967 Newsweek article, The JFK Conspiracy. What lies behind New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's increasingly notorious investigation of a plot to kill John F. Kennedy? To find out, Newsweek sent a veteran reporter who covered the assassination and its aftermath. By Hugh Ainsworth. Jim Garrison's right. There has been a conspiracy in New Orleans, but it's a plot of Garrison's own making. It is a scheme to concoct a fantastic solution to the death of John F. Kennedy and to make it stick. In this cause, the district attorney and his staff have been indirect parties to the death of one man and have humiliated, harassed, and financially gutted several others. Indeed, Garrison's tactics have been even more questionable than his case. I have evidence that one of the strapping DA's investigators offered an unwilling witness $3,000 in a job with an airline if only he would, quote, fill in the facts, close quote, of an alleged meeting to plot the death of the president. I also know that when the DA's office learned that this entire bribery attempt had been tape recorded, two of Garrison's men returned to the witness and, he says, threatened him with physical harm. Another man who spent many hours with District Attorney Garrison in a vain attempt to dissuade him from his assassination conspiracy theory has twice been threatened, once by one of the DA's own witnesses, the second time by Garrison himself. Others, Cuban exiles, convicts, drug addicts, homosexuals, bums, have been hounded in more subtle ways. For most of Garrison's victims are extremely vulnerable men. Some are already paying for their vulnerability. Chief among them is Clay Laverne Shaw, the New Orleans businessman socialite who now faces trial on a charge of conspiring to kill the president. Ainsworth was a devoted anti-Garrison journalist. The allegations in that article were roundly refuted by Garrison in a long, really long Playboy interview, October 1967, volume 14, number 10. You can find it online. Back in the Big Easy, David continues Garrison's May 14 letter to Shaw's defense attorney. In other instances, whenever the situation has provided an opportunity, there have been comments by defense lawyers designed at the very least to suggest that there was, quote, 
dirty work at the crossroads, end quote, by the district attorney. For example, when we subpoenaed Mr. Shaw's military record, your statements to the newspapers and on television were heavy with innuendo that there was a smear effort being made by the district attorney. In this connection, let me inform you that nothing was ever further from my mind and that a simple confirmation of information totally unrelated to any personal smear was all that was involved. I offer as an example for my refusal to participate in any smear of your client, even by the slightest of inferences, the fact that I have refused to make any comment whatsoever about such bizarre items as the five whips which were found underneath his bed. Shaw's charges were brought by Garrison under Louisiana law. The current revised statute, 1426, subpart E, in Choate Offenses, part 26, criminal conspiracy reads as follows, and I quote, part A, criminal conspiracy is the agreement or combination of two or more persons for the specific purpose of committing any crime provided that, oh heck, in other words, in my words, criminal conspiracy in Louisiana is simply when two or more persons agree to commit a criminal act and at least one person acts upon the agreement. Garrison accused Shaw on six counts. He was unable to convince the jury that Shaw was guilty of them. Robert reads again as Shaw, a letter to Sylvia Meager, July 8, 1968. Meager was one of a growing number of critics of the Warren Commission report. Whether we know it or not, most of us do expect life to follow art. We feel that great events should have the logic and consistency we demand of our better novelists and playwrights. And when death comes for a great statesman, we expect him to come in full panoply with nodding black plumes. Not in the form of a poor, psychotic little loser crouched behind his cardboard box barricade with a cheap mail-order rifle clutched in sweating hands. And yet to criticize what has happened on the grounds that it shouldn't have happened is to echo the childish complaint that life isn't as it should be. Events are, for better or worse, what they are. And if what actually happened fails to coincide with our preconceived notions of what should have happened, well then, so much the worse for our preconceived notions. Garrison's case was extraordinary. Using Louisiana criminal conspiracy law to try Shaw, Garrison, in effect, used the courtroom as theater to argue his belief that the Warren report was flawed. His justification is in court transcripts, Garrison's own closing arguments. I argue Shaw was nothing but a convenient sideshow. The Warren report? It's what exactly? And did it have anything to do with Clay Shaw? On November 29, 1963, Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon B. Johnson, appointed the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, commonly called the Warren Commission. The purpose? Johnson directed the commission to evaluate matters relating to JFK's assassination and subsequent killing of the alleged assassin and to report its findings and conclusions to him. The conclusions are commonly referred to as the Warren Report. 
You know, sometimes I feel like JFK assassination conspiracy theories have become a parlor game. It amazes me that almost everyone here in New Orleans to whom I mention the event has a hard, fast opinion. Some told me in absolute terms that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. Others posited that, yeah, probably he was set up a patsy. More true conspiracy theorists swear that dirty work at the crossroads were afoot, such as the industrial war machine was responsible, or Shaw was himself CIA, and the secret lab here in New Orleans concocting an accelerated cancer that could kill in 10 days, delivered by a virus developed for Oswald to deliver into the arm of Fidel Castro and assassinate him without detection. Or Zionists were behind it all. I've not looked into that last angle. For reference material used in this production, outlandish and not, go to lettersread.net forward slash resources, all lowercase. Shaw was acquitted of all conspiracy charges. Immediately, Garrison brought new charges of perjury, taking years to unravel. In turn, Shaw sued Garrison for harassment and prosecutorial abuses that injured Shaw's reputation. All this legal maneuvering ruined Shaw financially and negatively impacted him. Understandably, at one point after his absurd and very public arrest, he became embittered with the city and its theatrical customs he otherwise adored. Robert reads another journal entry. But of all the delusions held by New Orleans, Mardi Gras is the most fantastic. I doubt that anywhere in the world can one find such a vast number of people whose lives are ordered and regulated by a fervent dedication to unreality. The tourist sees only Mardi Gras Day, but the Mardi Gras Day that the visitor sees is only the final climax to a vast and complex year-round delusion, which has grown to the proportions of an important industry. The day one Mardi Gras is over, preparations begin for the next year. Floats and set designers, costume makers, painters, and workmen get busily to work to see that next year surpasses this. After all, they only have 365 days in which to work. Originally, there were some 20 organizations which gave carnival balls during this period. These were relatively exclusive. It was only after World War II that people who could not get into any of these organizations began to form their own. And now there are some 75 of them all trying to give balls more elaborate and expensive than the others. The real importance of the balls and the carnival organizations that stage them is that they constitute the real pecking order of New Orleans. It's by your membership at what organizations that businessmen judge each other's importance. And the savage infighting among business tycoons to see who will be the kings and dukes of their organization for the annual ball has to be seen to be believed all of which might be taken as more or less amusing social history, except for the fact that some several thousand of the city's leaders are preoccupied on an almost full-time basis with this sanity. They really forget that they are not really dukes and kings and that their daughters are not really queens, so that unreality of the social order inevitably slops over into the business life and indeed all of the life of the city. Epilogue. Shaw passed away in his French Quarter home early the morning of August 15, 1974. He was 61. New Orleans movers and shakers honored his service and love for the Crescent City with a huge brass plaque on the front of one of the properties he helped to preserve, 
the Spanish Stables, 724 Governor Nicholas Street, not far from his home. The plaque remains to this day. Garrison's dead, so is Shaw. I still have questions. Was Garrison's vendetta personal? There are multiple versions of an incident at Brennan's, the well-known, well-heeled, see-and-be-seen French Quarter restaurant. There it goes. Shaw saw or caused a public indiscretion in which he threw a drink at Garrison or witnessed Garrison throw said drink into his own wife's face. According to lore, Garrison never let go of the memory. His grudge fueled his prosecutorial resolve. Another theory is that Shaw's being queer was the perfect opportunity for Garrison to pluck him as low-hanging fruit and pin a trial on him. Are either true? For more insight into mid-20th century gay oppression, listen to all of Letters Read 2020. Thank you, Robert Valley. Thank you, Steve Chisick, Sonic Canvas Studio, for audio production. Big thanks to reader David Zelkind, my secret weapon researching the script. David was Oliver Stone's location scout here for the movie JFK, and he has loads of conspiracy theories of his own. Personal thanks to Clay Shaw's cousins, Billy Phillips and Elton Shaw, particularly to Billy. Thank you, Billy. And thanks to Scott Ellis for entertaining my questions. Special thanks to Alicia Long for providing insight, context, and some of the letters in this narrative. The introduction to her recently released book about Clay Shaw and the Garrison trial, Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Kennedy Assassination as a Sex Crime, Boundless South, UNC Press, reminds us that, and I quote, books devoted to exploring John F. Kennedy's assassination number in the thousands, so start reading. This production was underwritten by a generous donor wishing to remain anonymous. Listen this spring for the next Letters Read event, number one of three readings, Louisiana Lady Artists. And thank you.